0: All right, well, let's go through the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come to you today, Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts and our minds, Lord, to hear your word. Lord, let us see Jesus more clearly. Let us be changed. Let us be forever transformed through the power of your word and the power of your Holy Spirit. Come, Lord, today among us teach us and transform us this I pray in Christ's name amen if you have your Bibles with you this morning turn with me to Galatians the book of Galatians as we are continuing our study there in Galatians we will be looking at chapter 1 verses 11 through 24 this morning Galatians chapter 1 looking at verses 11 through 24 a you know, question that that comes up, especially in today, in today's time, is uh, how can we be sure that the gospel that we have, the revelation that we have from God, uh, even His Word, how can we be sure of its divine origins? How can we be sure that the Word that we have, the Bible, uh, and more particularly the gospel that the Bible teaches us, how can we be sure? that that is God's gospel, God's word to us. I was having a conversation just last week, uh, last Sunday, in fact. A young man came and uh, got to talking to him and turned the conversation towards spiritual things. And I I asked him, well, what do you think about the Bible? What's your view about the Bible? And his his response was, well, it's a good old book written by some ancient men it's not really God's word it's not really his book but it's a uh, just a collection of writings of ancient men good things but it's not divine and and that was a man here in Bastrop Uh, we don't think about especially in the church oftentimes we we don't think uh, we think everybody believes in the Bible but but that's just not so many people today and more and more as the culture grows more and more secular we see more doubt when it comes to god's word so how can we be sure that god's word the the bible that we have and the message of the bible how can we be sure that it is of divine origins how can we be sure that this is not just a book written by men but this is a book written through men by God. Well, we can see that in the text of Scripture. We can see Scripture itself uh, testifying that to us, but we can also see it in other ways as well. There's gr- many great evidences that this book is of divine origins. Just as we saw back on an Easter, We saw that we could see the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's evidence, there's proof that Jesus rose from the dead. Well, there's also evidence, there's proof that this book and its message, the gospel, is of divine origins. It's not just man's gospel, this is God's gospel. In fact, we see in our text today, we run into a similar situation you remember, let me just remind you of where we are and what we're, we're talking about here in the book of Galatian. These churches that Paul had just finished planting not too long before he writes this letter he had just planted, these are new churches, fresh churches they're, they're still getting things kind of worked out and organized and then no sooner than Paul leaves them, here along comes uh, false teachers and they're coming to the churches there in Galatia and they're introducing a false gospel a false message and so we began by looking at Paul's introduction and even in his introduction to this letter he lays out the gospel very much in seed form very very small very uh, short and concise but we saw the gospel laid out there in the last two messages we we move down to the next section of the letter and, and Paul he states the problem Here's the problem. There's these false teachers, and you're, you're abandoning God by following these false teachers. And so we saw the, the warning, beware of false teachers and false gospels. And then we also looked in and saw uh, some characteristics of a faithful teacher. And now we get into a section here where Paul is defending his apostleship and the gospel that he has preached. You see, what do you do when you go into a town, you go into a setting, into a church, and you want to to change things? What do you want to do when you want to take this gospel that this guy has preached, this gospel that Paul has preached, and you want to turn the people to believe this message, this gospel that you are preaching? Well, how do you do that? You begin by tearing down Paul. You began by trying to discredit Paul, and that's what these false teachers were doing. They were trying to discredit Paul. They came in with their false gospel and they said, Look, this Paul that came and he, he planted this church, he, he's not an apostle. He's not an apostle. He, he's, not one of, he, he's not one with Peter and, and, and James and all the other apostles. He's not really an apostle, and the gospel that he is preaching is really not the gospel. It's not the gospel. It's a a man-made gospel. It's Paul's gospel. It is of Paul's imagination, but we have the true gospel. And so they began trying to attack Paul and attack his character. And so Paul, coming into this narrative section of Galatians, he is defending, one, his, his apostleship, that he is an apostle appointed by God to deliver the gospel message to bring revelation, and the gospel that he is preaching is not man's gospel, but it is indeed God's gospel. And so we see this next section, it begins in verse 11, and it moves on to chapter 2, verse 14. So we're going to take this and break it up into three parts, and today we're going to look at that first part. But we see in defense of his apostleship and in the defense of the gospel, He lays out first of all, and I want you to see this, he he lays out first the thesis, his little thesis statement. Verses 11 and 12 stand as his thesis statement. Let me just read those to you. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, for... I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And so that's his thesis. That's what he is saying. And then he's going to go through a narrative about his life, about his conversion, and then how he became established in the church to set forth his argument of why he is apostle, what's the evidence of his apostleship, and what's the evidence that the gospel is God's gospel and so we're going to see this in three parts first we're going to see today we're going to look at conversion uh, corroboration conversion corroboration next week we'll look at community confirmation and then third courageous confrontation so you only have to remember today conversion corroboration though and uh, we'll get to the others as we we come to them in the text But today we're focusing in on conversion corroboration. And I want you to see this here today, friend, that the divine origins of the gospel is corroborated by the radical transformation of a converted life. Let me say that again. The divine origins of the gospel is corroborated. It is proven. There is that evidence of it. It is corroborated by the radical transformation of a converted life. And so Paul begins with his conversion. What he was, what God did, and what he became. And so today we're going to look at that. We're going to look at the three stages of conversion. The three stages of conversion. Pre-conversion, conversion, conversion, and post-conversion. And I want you to see that the the radical transformation in Paul's life, but not only Paul's life, but in every Christian's life, The radical transformation that takes place is an evidence. It is a proof that this gospel is no man's gospel. If it were man's gospel, it would not have the power to transform, radically transform life. But being God's gospel, it comes with power. And that power makes a radical transformation in a person's life. So my hope is that today you will leave here with greater confidence in, number one, the gospel, the gospel in particular, the Bible in general, and then I hope you leave here with a better, uh, a greater confidence in your own conversion, and if you see where you are lacking, perhaps you'll look at your conversion and ask that question Am I truly in Christ? I want us to see this this morning. If you found your place there, please stand with me in reverence to the reading of God's holy word. Hear the word of the Lord. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man... Nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among many among my people. So So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach the gospel, uh, preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that is Peter, and remained with him fifteen days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother, In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorify God because of me. Amen. Amen. May the Lord add blessings to the reading of his holy, inspired, and inerrant word, and may he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. You may be seated. So Paul lays out here for us the three stages of conversion, looking at the three stages of his conversion. And the first stage of conversion that we see here is pre-conversion, what he was before he was converted, and pre-conversion in pre-conversion there is a rebellious disposition toward God in pre-conversion there is a rebellious disposition toward God there's a, a rebellious attitude a rebellious nature we are by nature rebels we are by nature sinners we are by nature against God we are enemies of God and he shows that in his own life He demonstrates that for us. Even Paul. Now remember, Paul, he was a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee. In fact, he says he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He he was top dog when it came to Pharisees. And and the Pharisees, they 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 knew the law. They knew the law of God. They knew the Old Testament. In fact, to be a Pharisee, you had to have certain portions of the Old Testament completely memorized. Books, we're talking about books of the Old Testament completely memorized. And he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was top dog when it comes to the religious establishment back in Jerusalem. So he's a religious dude, but but even in that, he was at odds with God. And he shows us his rebellious nature uh, as he considers what he was before. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism. Here's what I was before. And what do we see in the life of Paul before conversion? The first thing that we notice here is that he was a passionate persecutor of the church. He was a passionate uh, persecutor of the church. You heard of my former life in Judaism, verse 13, how I persecuted the church of God violently. I persecuted the church violently. That gives us some of the nature of his persecution. He he wasn't light on this at all. It was violently. He went after them physically to do them physical harm. He went after the church violently. And not only that, he said, I went after the church violently and tried to destroy it. I tried to destroy it. That word there used for try to destroy it, uh, that word... It's used in other places and other writings to to communicate what armies would do when they came to an opposing city. They would rack it. They would completely annihilate it. And that's what Paul says. I was that kind of an enemy of God's church. I was out to violently destroy God's church. And that's an accurate picture of what Paul was doing. We see Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9 and let me just read a bit of that Acts, Acts chapter 9 starting in verse 1. We'll just read 1 and 2. But Saul, that was Paul before he became the apostle Paul. This is Saul, Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Went to the high priest and asked him for letters To the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found anyone belonging to the way, that is the church, men or women, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Paul was after the church of God, he was out to destroy it. He was an enemy of God, he was a passionate persecutor of the church. But not only was he a passionate persecutor of the church, he was also a religious zealot. He was a religious zealot. He was a religious man. He was zealous for the traditions of his fathers. Look there in the next verse. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. He was zealous for the law of Moses. He was zealous for all the extra laws that the the people, the elders of Jerusalem had thrown in there. He was zealous for the traditions of his father. He was a religious man. Did you know you can be as religious as you want to be and still be at odds with God? Paul was. In fact, religion in general. I know we call ourselves, we call Christianity a religion, but Christianity is not a religion. Religion, you see, is me trying to do something to appease God and to appeal to God. That's what religion says. Religion says I need to do something to get right with God. But Christianity says, no, it's not about doing, it's not about works. Christianity says it's about a relationship. Christianity is not a religion. I'm not religious. I'm in a relationship. But Paul was religious. He was a religious man. He was zealous in his religion and all of his religious practices. He was sincere. He was sincere about his beliefs. He saw himself as a radical for God and all that he did. In fact, Paul probably thought of himself as a, a Phineas. You remember the story of Phineas? Phineas was the son of Aaron. And there was a time back in Numbers. You don't have to turn there. I'll, I'll go there and just read this part to you. But back here in Numbers chapter 20, 25, Numbers chapter 25, we, we have the, the episode there. We have this part, this time in, in Israel's history when they're going through the wilderness and uh, uh, Barak, Balak, the, the king of the—I uh, forgot who he was king of. He was king of this other country. I'll think of it in a minute. He was king of this other country, that, that Israel, they were going through the territory, and, and he, was, he was afraid of Israel. So Balak got Balaam to come and cast a curse on the Israelites— but every time Balaam opened up his mouth to curse the Israelites, out came a blessing. Three times he tried to curse the Israelites, and out came a blessing. And so, what did Balaam do? He said, well, here, here's what you need to do, block. If you, if you want to really get God on the Israelites, if you want God to curse the Israelites, then here's what you do. You, you take your women who are the prostitutes up in your your idolatrous religion in that temple, and you send them into Israel and you take the, the women of your nation, you send them into Israel with your idolatry and lead the people of Israel into idolatry chasing after another God, and then God will curse them. And that's what he did. And so in uh, numbers chapter 25 we see this taking place we see kind of what is taking place after this while israel lived in in shittim the people began to whore with the daughters of moab he was the king of the moabites that's what it was they began to whore with the daughter, daughters of moab moab These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself with the Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you, Kill those of his men who have yoked himself to Baal of Peor. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron... The priest saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel and after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman, through their belly. Thus the plague of the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were twenty four thousand. So here. Phineas, he is a, a radical for God's glory and he is going out to defend the glory of God and he goes in and he kills this man who is chasing after these other gods along with the whore that he is prostituting, uh, sleeping with and he pierces them, he kills them and God's glorified in that because he denounces Baal of and Paul, he sees himself as a Phineas Here's this new religion sprouting up and people are going after this Jesus and he sees that as, as people being pulled away from Judaism and he's zealous for Judaism. And so he's out. He's sincere in his beliefs, very sincere in his beliefs. You know, we see that as one of the, one of the things of today and contempor- one of the contemporary, contemporary ideas of the day. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere about it. you ever heard that? We hear it all the time. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. But that's not what Scripture tells us. You see, there's a lot of Muslims out there. They're sincere about their belief. And they're doing radical things in the name of Allah because of what they believe. But the problem is, they're misdirected. Just like Paul, Paul was misdirected in his beliefs. Oh, he was sincere about his beliefs, but his beliefs were misdirected. They weren't in the truth of God's Word. Oh, dear friend, we can be sincere, very sincere about what we believe in and be marching our way right to hell. It matters what you believe in. It matters what you believe in. Sincerity can never bring you to salvation if you do not sincerely believe the truth. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So pre-conversion there's a rebellious disposition towards God that's true of Paul that was true of Paul and that's true of every one of us we were in a rebellious disposition toward God before we were converted second the second state stage of conversion is the act of conversion itself that the, the, the act of conversion itself that process in conversion there is a divine revelation of jesus christ in conversion there is a divine revelation of jesus christ god comes in and reveals christ to us here we see going on there uh, we begin to see in paul's conversion four ways that god's grace works in the conversion experience Four ways that God's grace begins to work in the conversion experience. First of all, we see God's grace intervenes. God's grace intervenes. Verse 15 says, but... Now that's an important word. That's that's important enough to stop there for just a second. But... Paul says, here's what I was before. I was zealous for Judaism. I was zealously going after the church to destroy the church in the name of Judaism. But but, but God, but God, but look at that, but when he who had set me apart, that is God, right, it doesn't say God's name there, but that's God, he who set me apart, God, but God, we see this over and over in scripture, Ephesians chapter 2, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God, made us alive in Jesus Christ. We see it in Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 5. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us. Oh, what, is a, what, what? how wonderful that is that God's grace intervenes. We're going away from God. We're chasing the things of this world. We're chasing our own wants, our own desires. We're headed straight to hell, but God, but God intervenes. He comes in. His grace intervenes. So God's grace intervenes. Second, God's grace appoints. God's grace appoints. Look there, continuing on. But when he who had appointed me, or set me apart. When he who had set me apart, that that word can be translated appointed. That's why I say appointed. Really, there's a participle there. In the Greek, this is a participle. And and it literally means the appointing one. It just doesn't sound right in English. it's It's saying... But when the appointing one, when he came and called me, this is that that the point being made here is that Paul Paul was appointed by God. It's God's grace who comes in and appoints Paul. He's appointed him to this. We see the same kind of language in Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 5. Before I, was, before I formed you, God talking to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. It's God's grace that comes and appoints. His grace intervenes and it appoints. It appoints. It, 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 it sets Paul apart. He set him apart. And and notice here when he set him apart. He set him apart, not at this point in history, but before he was born. But when he who set me apart before I was born, wow. Do you see the significance there? You see, God didn't save Paul because of what Paul did. God didn't say Paul because of what he was going to do, but God appointed Paul because God wanted to appoint Paul. God set his love on Paul, and he appointed Paul before the foundations of the earth. Before he was ever old enough to do anything right or wrong, God appointed Paul. Before he ever took his first breath, God appointed Paul. And I want you to see, dear friends, this is not something that is just true of Paul. Right? God didn't see that Paul was going to be such a great missionary and appoint him. God, Paul was a great missionary because God appointed him. And this is true of any and every one of us. We are saved by God's appointing us. We see the same idea worked out in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ even uh, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as He chose us, He appointed us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption as sons Through Jesus Christ. And catch this, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which we are blessed, with with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Oh, dear friends, we are appointed, we are predestined before the foundations of the earth for conversion. He appoints us to that. God's grace intervenes. God's grace appoints. And third, and you need to write this one in because for some reason in, in your handout there, I, I missed this one. I took it out for some reason, but it needs to be in there. And this is, uh, this is actually the third point. God's grace calls. God's grace calls, and that's with 15c, verse 15, the third part of verse 15. God's grace calls. Look here, look here again. But when he who had appointed me set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace. God called Paul at the appointed time. God called Paul. Paul was on his way to Damascus to, to destroy the church. And as he was going, he met a light. He was blinded by a great light, Acts chapter 9 tells us. And there, the voice of the Lord came and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He called Paul. He called out the name of Paul. He called Paul. Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? I want you to see that. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. There on the road to Damascus at the appointed time, God met Saul, he met Paul, and he called Paul to his appointed position, to his appointed place. I want you to see this and recognize this, friend. You know, there's something about our call. Our call is not like God's call. Our call, we can call and call and call and nothing happened, right? I, I went out and was walking Gus the other day, and, and Gus took off. He, he likes to run. When we get him outside the house, he just takes off. And he took off. And I began to call him. I began to holler him, Gus, 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 come here, Gus. Nothing happened. He just kept on running, kept running, running, running. You see, my call is not effectual. It it doesn't always have a great effect. It doesn't always accomplish what I intend it to accomplish. But that is not true with God's call. God's call is action. God's call ends with result. God says, let there be light, and there's light. Jesus stands up in the the rocky sea and he calls out to the sea and the wind and he says, Peace be still. And the winds and the waves respond to the call of Jesus Christ and they are still. God's call is action. God's call always ends in results. When God calls us, there is a response. And fourth, the fourth, the fourth character, or the fourth way God's grace works in conversion, God's grace reveals. God's grace reveals. Look there again in verse 16 now. When the one and he and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. That word there, reveal, means uncovering. It's uncovering. So so imagine this: there's a veil. There's a veil covering us. There's covering our eyes. We can't see Jesus. That's why Paul calls out, Who are you, Lord? He knows He's Lord, but he, he, he can't see Him. But then God removes the veil. I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. You see, that's what takes place in conversion. God removes the veil. We are veiled. We can't see the glory of Jesus Christ because of sin. We can't see the glory of Jesus Christ because of our nature, our sin nature covering that. There's a veil. It's it's hiding His glory. But when God calls, He reveals Jesus. He unveils Jesus. You can imagine like a birthday party and you got a gift there and it's covered up. You want you know surprise, you want to surprise your wife, you want to surprise your husband with this new gift and you cover it up. It's veiled. But then you take off the veil and reveal the present. That's what takes place in conversion. God takes off the veil and he reveals the glory of Jesus Christ. Conversion has nothing to do with who we are or what we do or what we will do, dear friend. Conversion from start to finish is all about God's glory and His grace. It's all about His grace it's all about grace we have no reason to boast in ourselves that's why Paul says if I boast I boast in the Lord because we have no reason to boast it's not about what we did it's not about what we will do it's all about God's grace grace upon grace upon grace we are saved by the grace of God alone what do we do? we trust in Jesus that's it There's nothing to do. Everything is His grace. All the doing is about God's grace. And by God's grace, Paul was converted. And by God's grace, we who are converted were converted. In conversion, there is a divine revelation, a divine revealing of Jesus Christ by God's grace. Pre-conversion, I'll rush through this last one Pre-conversion, there is a rebellious disposition toward God In conversion, there is a a divine revelation of Jesus Christ And finally, we consider the third stage of conversion Post-conversion In post-conversion, there is a radical transformation of life There is a radical transformation of life Something takes place, something changes Look again to verse 16 when when God was re- was pleased to reveal His Son to me, uh, some translations and maybe your translation has it like this: He was re- He was pleased to reveal His Son in me. Uh, the word therefore, to or in, it, it could go either way. And so when we look at this, you know, most times you would. You would translate that, uh, reveal his son to me, because that's what you do. You reveal to someone, not in someone. But in the case of Christianity, in the case of salvation, I think the better translation is in me. He was pleased to reveal the son in me, because that's what takes place. That's exactly what happens. We're not just, he doesn't just reveal Jesus so we can see him out here, he reveals him in here, in our hearts. In our lives. In fact, it tells us, Scripture tells us that He sends the Spirit of the Lord to live in us. The Holy Spirit comes to live in us. John 16, verse 7, Jesus says to His disciples, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, that is the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. Romans eight and nine. You however are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of God does not belong to Him. If the spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, Romans eight eleven. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. You see, there's something that takes place. Christ is not just revealed out here. Christ is revealed in us. He's in us. The Spirit comes and moves in us and reveals Christ inside us. And that does something. Change begins to take place. We're not the same person. Scripture says we are new. We are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Christ Jesus is revealed in us. Not only is Christ revealed in us, but we're also given a purpose. A purpose is given to us. As that revelation comes to us, now we have a purpose for living. People are always looking for the purpose of life, the meaning of life. For Christians, we don't have to search. We've been given a purpose. We've been given a mission and a meaning. In order that, Paul says in verse 16, in order that. that's, That's purpose. That's a purpose statement. In order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Now, we are not all called like Paul to preach him among the Gentiles. We are Gentiles. But we are given that same commission, the same kind of commission. Jesus tells us, You will be my or <coughs> go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I have taught you. And behold, I am with you always until the end of the age. You are given a commission. And you will be my witnesses, Acts 1 8. You will be my witnesses. We have been given a purpose to proclaim the gospel, to share the gospel to whomever we go to and wherever we may go. Paul's life was radically transformed when he met Jesus. And the evidence of that radical transformation then, it's obvious you can see that. And I'm not going to read that, but you can go on there and through the rest of that and see how what a difference it made. It was a radical transformation that took place. And the people back in Jerusalem, they were just hearing about this man who used to persecute them so, and now he is proclaiming Jesus Christ, and they glorify God. A radical transform life is one of the proofs, dear friends that you are converted. Did you know that? Hear me now. A radically transformed life is evidence of your conversion. We're not saved by what we do. But I want you to hear me. If you can say, yes, Brother Richard, I I prayed a prayer back when I was this age, and and, and this one time I prayed this prayer, and and I'm saved. But now you look across across time here, and now 10, 20, 30 years later, you say, well, I'm not any different, I'm the same person, but I was converted. I said a prayer. If you look at your life and everything has remained the same, there's been no transformation. There's been no change in your life. Dear friend, question your conversion. Well, Brother Richard, you want me to question my salvation? Yes, I do. I want you to question it. If you haven't seen the glory of God transform your life, radically transform your life, you better question your conversion. Because when the Spirit of God moves in us, He changes us. He transforms us. He makes us into a new creation. If you're not a new creation, you're not in Christ. That's what Paul says in Romans. Question it. Don't leave here today until you know for sure. Turn to Jesus. Trust in Jesus. And He'll move in. He'll set up camp, and he will transform your life. But the radical transformation of lives, of the innumerable lives of Christians, is also proof that the gospel is no man's gospel. And this book is no man's book. Look at all the people that have been so radically transformed by the gospel. Look at Paul. Look at the countless others throughout history who have been so transformed by the gospel. There's no explanation behind that except for that God is in it. This is God's powerful word at work. Oh, dear friend, we can trust in this gospel. The gospel that Paul preached. The gospel that he proclaimed. The gospel that is proclaimed throughout God's Word is a divine gospel with divine origins. As one commentator says, the gospel is not good advice from man. It is good news from God. Amen? This is good news from God. Dear friend, I want you to know here today, perhaps you're here today And you don't know the gospel. You don't know. You've never heard the gospel. I want you to know because of your sin, you deserve to to die and go to hell because of your rebellion against God. You deserve all eternity of punishment because of your sin and your rebellion against our Creator. Yet God loved you, and by His grace, He sent His Son to die for you on Calvary's cross. If you trust in Jesus, Turn away from your rebellion and turn to Christ. God, by His grace, will save you. There's nothing for you to do. It's all done and accomplished by God's grace. Maybe it is that God's grace brought you to this place today. The very very purpose of hearing about Jesus. Today, maybe He's revealing Christ to you. He's removing the veil respond in faith that's it trust believe in jesus oh heavenly father we thank you for the confidence that we can have the evidence that you have given us throughout history of your the gospel of your glorious grace Thank you for the message of Jesus that has been handed down generation after generation after generation preserved in your word. Thank you that we can have confidence in your word. Lord, if there's one today who does not know you, Lord, turn their heart to Jesus. This I pray in Christ's name. Amen.